Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I want to welcome you all back to our ongoing saga of tackling various acronyms and initialisms in tech and demystifying them. So we're just kind of making our way through the alphabet and learning what these different groups of letters actually stand for, and hopefully learning a bit of extra stuff about them along the way. So far, we've uh, we've made it up to the G's, and we have a couple more to go in that realm before we get the H out of here. So let's get started. Also, hey, uh, as I've gone through this, I've noticed that I may have left out, you know, a few acronyms and initialisms just because of blind spots or, you know, just just skimming over stuff or whatever. So after all these episodes, if you feel there's some that I've missed, let me know on Twitter at TechStuffHSW, and maybe I'll do a roundup episode at the end. All right. GPU. This stands for Graphics Processing Unit. Now, back in the first episode of this series, I talked about CPUs, or Central Processing Units. Well, GPUs are kind of similar in that they are microprocessors that execute instructions on data, and they produce output. But as the name suggests, the intended purpose for a GPU is to process graphics. Now, in the ancient days of the 1990s, there was a shift in computing and the need for processors. Programmers, uh, primarily video game developers, but not exclusively video game developers, well, they kept making software that pushed computing hardware to the limit and sometimes went beyond that limit. The central processing units of these computers would get overtaxed and performance would suffer and you just typically wouldn't be able to get as much out of the game as the developers had hoped you would. Now, graphics cards, which could help offload some of the work that the CPU had to do, had been a thing since the 1980s. The 1990s saw developers creating games and applications that included 3D graphics. Not that the graphics were coming out of your screen or whatever, but rather images now appeared to have depth to them. They weren't just two-dimensional, like flat cutouts on screen. And we saw companies like NVIDIA and 3DFX manufacture more sophisticated cards to help handle that processing requirement, to kind of offload that work so the CPU wasn't so burdened. NVIDIA introduced the GeForce 256 in 1999, and the company referred to it as the first graphics processing unit. So while we had cards that fulfilled the function of a GPU for a while, This would be when someone actually coined the term itself. These days, the architecture of a GPU means that it has a parallel approach to processing data. That means they can process information in parallel, dividing up data into more manageable chunks and working on everything at the same time. And I always use a classroom analogy to describe parallel processing because I think it really helps illustrate how this works from a high level. So let's go over that right now. So let's say you've got a class of six really bright math students, and one of those students is a true genius, someone who just has a natural affinity for mathematics, and we'll call her Rachel. So Rachel is a math genius, and she's great at math. She can solve any mathematical problem faster than her fellow students, the other five just aren't as fast. They are all very good. They're all very good students. They just aren't genius level. One day, the teacher comes in with a challenge, 
and the teacher has a math quiz and has five problems on that quiz. Each problem is completely independent of the others. So there's no connection between like problems one and two and two and three and so on. And the teacher hands out the quiz to all six students and explains that Rachel is going to tackle all five problems. But the other five students will each take only one problem each. So student one takes problem one, student two takes problem two, etc. So it's going to be a race. And the quiz begins and Rachel gets to work, but she needs to solve all five problems one after the other, while the other five students each must concentrate on just one problem each. The other students get to tackle the quiz in parallel. They chop up the quiz into individual problems. So Rachel is fast, but she's not fast enough to overcome the advantage that the other students have. And that's how parallel processing works. A processor that can perform parallel processing, a lot of alliteration in this passage, uh, you know, like a multi-core processor or modern GPUs are all in this way. They can solve certain types of computational problems far faster than a really, really beefy single core processor could. But there are also computational problems that cannot split up into smaller chunks. So if the teacher structured the math quiz so that question two depended upon the answer to question one and question three depended upon the answer to question two and so on, Rachel would have the advantage then because the five individual students would have to wait for the previous answer before they could jump on their particular question. Well, graphics processing is a really specific computational task. And thus, GPUs don't need to be able to do all the general computing that a CPU has to handle. That means that manufacturers can optimize GPUs to make them really efficient for that specific type of processing. On a side note, cryptographers and Bitcoin miners really love GPUs because they can be repurposed to tackle other parallel processes like breaking encryption or mining Bitcoins. For that reason, it can often be very difficult for gamers to get hold of the most recent GPUs because other folks are scooping them up to use in completely unrelated applications. And in the case of Bitcoin mining, uh, it's a very potentially profitable application and thus the money generated from the mining can go back into building out even more powerful Bitcoin mining systems and that requires more GPUs and thus you have your you know humble gamer who just wants to build a gaming PC who can't get hold of a graphics card plus the graphics cards prices are skyrocketing because of this high demand well in part because of the high demand they're also very expensive Moving on, GUI. This stands for Graphical User Interface. And most of the time we don't say GUI, we actually say GUI. So uh, GUI is a GUI, which is in turn a Graphical User Interface. Most popular operating systems these days have a GUI. Windows, Mac OS, iOS, and Android all have GUIs. And a GUI represents programs and processes as icons, that you click on and then they activate. So if you remember from the last episode, we covered DOS, which is a text-based operating system. With DOS, you have to type in commands to navigate the OS and execute programs. It's far less intuitive than an OS that uses a GUI. But on the flip side, text-based operating systems require much fewer 
computer resources to operate. So it leaves way more for the actual programs you want to run, and they don't have to worry about, you know, the OS itself hogging some of those resources. Early work in GUI design dates back to the 1960s. Douglas Engelbart, a man associated with the GUI as well as the computer mouse and other innovations, demonstrated a system in the late 1960s during an event that folks later referred to as the mother of all demos. Xerox's Park division developed a GUI for an internal computer system that never really saw much practical use, but folks like Steve Jobs got a chance to see a GUI in action along with the computer mouse and saw it as the future of operating systems. A well-designed GUI significantly lowers the learning curve of using a computer. In the early days of personal computers, the general sense was that computers were for hobbyists and other nerds and geeks, people who didn't mind diving into manuals to learn cryptic commands in order to make these mysterious machines actually work. But the emergence of the GUI in the mid-1980s made it way easier to understand how to interact with a computer. All the processes that required people to navigate file trees and type in commands were out the window, so to speak, and now icons and clicking did all the work. Since then, the GUI has become the standard OS approach for most consumer-facing computational devices. You still have some text-based systems out there, but for the most part, the general public doesn't encounter them. Specialists, totally different story, but general public, mostly GUI-based these days. We're a GUI bunch. Next is HDD. This stands for Hard Disk Drive. So a disk drive is a device that allows a computer to read and write to some form of digital storage. And there are lots of different versions of disk drives. Back in the day, a floppy disk drive referred to a drive that allowed a user to insert or remove physical disks from a drive. But a hard disk drive could be an integral part of a computer all by itself, allowing the system to store and read information on an internal drive that was non-volatile, meaning that the information would remain in place even should the computer be powered down. Some hard disk drives are internal to a computer, some are separate and, and connect to a computer via cables, so it all just depends upon the specific setup. But these hard disk drives are mechanical devices, and HDD has at least one rotating platter inside it. And most HDDs have multiple platters, positioned almost like a stack of pancakes, except there's a gap between each platter. So there's not, you know, they're not stacked touching each other. There's a gap between each one. And in between them, within that gap, there is uh, an actuator arm. Most HDDs have multiple actuator arms that can extend between the the different platters, and at the end of that actuator arm is a magnetic head that can read or write information magnetically to the platters. So all the info is stored magnetically. This is why if you ever were around computers in the old days, uh, people always said, make sure you don't have magnets near them because that could corrupt data on the device. Still not a great idea to work with computers near powerful magnets, for multiple reasons, but that was the main reason back in the day. Because HDDs are mechanical, stuff can and does break down. So if the platters become misaligned, the whole thing could grind to a halt, or, or worse, it could shake itself to pieces. If an actuator arm bends the wrong way, it could cause irreparable damage to the platters. There are a lot of parts that could potentially break down or wear out. 
Not all the problems are showstoppers. Some of them are totally repairable, but it does mean that there are several potential points of failure with an HDD. They also tend to add a lot of weight to devices. For that reason, many smaller gadgets rely on alternative data storage systems, some of which we will cover later in these episodes. So for a long time, HDDs were significantly cheaper than alternatives, and they remain the primary method of internal storage for computers, but it also takes time for a computer to retrieve information stored on an HDD because we have to remember, this is a mechanical system. It actually takes time for components to move into place and start to search for and pull relevant data. So a top-of-the-line HDD typically has a lot more storage capacity than the alternative. So when it comes to actual storage, the HDD tends to win out, particularly when you look at the price tag per amount of storage. It's pretty common to find HDDs today in the two to four terabyte range, which honestly still blows my mind because I'm old and I remember when a megabyte was a big deal. Next, we have HDMI. This is High Definition Multimedia Interface. In the early 2000s, a group of companies that included Toshiba, Sony, Philips, and Hitachi worked together to create a standardized technology that would allow for the transfer of uncompressed audio and video signals from a source to an output, such as from a computer to a display or a set-top box to a television. The HDMI standard would allow for higher resolution video while also carrying audio signals. And over the years, there have been many different cables and ports designed for these purposes. So let's do a very quick rundown for the video side. Early on in the 1950s, you had the development of composite RCA. This cable, little yellow tipped cable, you might remember those, that could carry an analog video signal of up to standard definition resolution. That's either 480i or 576i, depending upon your region. The signal coded down to a single channel of information. A couple of decades later, companies introduced the S-Video cable, which carried video in two channels and allowed for a higher quality video transmission. Then you had component video cables, which split the video into three channels and could be even better quality, especially for color representation and luminosity. The component video cables were the top of the line in analog video signal transmission, but they also came right at the tail end of that, just before the digital revolution. So they weren't relevant for terribly long. They sort of became obsolete. After component cables, we got DVI, and shortly after that, we got HDMI. And the HDMI tech has essentially won out and become the standard tech for transmitting digital video and audio. Companies have improved the tech since its introduction. The HDMI of 2002 was, you know, HDMI 1.0. These days, the most recent specification is HDMI 2.1, and that specification allows for the transmission of signals of up to 8K resolution with 60 frames per second, or 4K resolution at 120 frames per second. I think it can even transmit up to 10K resolution, though you do take a hit on the frames per second at that point. And it can transmit data at a bandwidth of 48 gigabits per second. To take advantage of this specification, all the parts of a connected system have to be HDMI 2.1 compatible. That includes the source of the signal, the cables you're using, and the output device, whatever you're viewing it on. So in other words, if you've got a system that has an HDMI 2.1 out port 
and an HDMI 2.1 cable, but your television only supports to up to, I don't know, HDMI 1.4, you will not get the full benefit of HDMI 2.1. It would still work because it is as a specification that is backwards compatible. It could still carry and deliver signals that the television would be able to show. It just wouldn't be at the 2.1 specifications. You wouldn't get the full benefit unless every part of the system is current with HDMI. Well, we are at a point where I think it's a good time to take a break because these acronyms, despite how short they are, get kind of exhausting to say. We're back and let's hit it with HDR, which stands for High Dynamic Range. This is a dynamic range that is high. Uh, it can actually cover a lot of different types of stuff. High dynamic range is not limited to a specific technology. Essentially, it means that whatever range you're looking at, whether it's for a specific kind of a signal or a color representation or rendering or whatever, it's a range that has lots and lots of divisions. There's a big difference between the lowest end of the range and the highest end of the range. It's got a lot of dynamics to it. We call music really dynamic if there are a lot of uh, variations between the softest tones and the loudest tones, as well as the quality of tone. So typically, this means you have more minute steps between the lowest end and the highest end. All of that sounds pretty wishy-washy when I say it out loud, so let's use colors as an example. I'm pretty sure you all know Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. The color spectrum for stuff like rainbows. That's a very simple spectrum, right? Just seven colors. But you know there's more than just seven colors. There are a lot of different shades of these colors, which you could also think of as little steps between one color, whatever you designate as being the true version of, say, red, and the next color, whatever is the true version of orange. Heck, I remember in the old days having crayons that had blue-green and green-blue in the same crayon pack. And the two crayons were not exactly the same color. Instead, both of them showed a color that, in one instance, was just a little more blue than it was green, and the other was the opposite. So, if we're talking about a color spectrum, HDR might refer to more variants or shades of colors, perhaps in a spectrum broad enough that two adjacent colors might be difficult to distinguish for the average person, that they are different, but they might not be distinct enough for you to be able to tell on casual glance. With a digital display, this sort of color range means you're able to experience more lifelike colors. The display doesn't have to rely as much on tricking your eyes by using a more limited palette of colors to create the illusion of that range, and we end up with more vibrant and lifelike images as a result. So while HDR can refer to a ton of different stuff in tech, for the average consumer, we typically see it in reference to displays and televisions. There's no standard HDR format, which is kind of a pain in the tuchus since there are competing formats on the market. There is a minimum set of specs that each format has to meet in order for the Ultra HD Alliance, which sounds like a supervillain group, uh, for them to consider it actual HDR. So in other words, you have to meet certain criteria for it to be HDR, but there's no standardized way to do this. And it's just... 
it doesn't matter how you get the output. It just has to have the output meet those specifications, which is a little frustrating. HDMI 2.1, which we talked about before the break, supports HDR. And kind of like HDMI, to enjoy the benefits of HDR, you need every element in your system to be compatible with whichever format you're trying to display. And HDR video is about more than just color representation. It also has to do with luminance or brightness. HDR is also a great way to explain that image quality goes well beyond just resolution. A picture could have very high resolution, but very poor color representation. Video image quality depends upon multiple factors. So that includes resolution, color representation, contrast, which is the difference between the brightest and darkest colors, and how many steps there are between those two extremes. It's kind of its own high dynamic range feature, as well as frame rate. That's another big one. Now, the reason I mention all of this is in case you're ever in the market to upgrade your home theater system, it's good to know there is not just one single component you should concern yourself with, or else you might find that the setup you buy doesn't match your expectations. Moving on, next we have HTML and XHTML. These are not, you know, partners that had a nasty breakup and now they're X's. No, HTML is hypertext markup language and XHTML is extensible hypertext markup language. Let's break these down a bit to understand what they actually mean. So a markup language is a tool that allows someone to make annotations to a document that is distinct from the content of that document. So for example, if you've ever worked with a document program that allows editors to put in comments off to the side in that electronic format, uh, perhaps it shows up as like a little word bubble. Well, that's an example of a markup language system. It's a technological evolution of an editor making notes in red pencil. And man, that takes me back. So much red pencil. Hypertext is a method of creating text that can link to other parts of a document, uh, an electronic document, or it can link other documents together. So it's links, in other words. If you're familiar with the web, it's links. Let's say that you have an electronic document version of the play Hamlet by Shakespeare, and you want to go straight to the to be or not to be speech. Well, then you could go to the table of contents in that electronic document and click on the hypertext link for Act 3, Scene 1, and boom, that link takes you to that section of the document. And like I said, those links can go either within a document itself or between different documents. In the World Wide Web, hypertext represents the strands of web that hold different points together. You can also think of HTML as a set of instructions as to how a web browser should display a page. The markup language uses tags to distinguish different elements within the document. So for example, there's the tag open bracket IMG slash closed bracket, which indicates an image. Yeah, I get it. So using HTML, you can create structured documents that behave a specific way within a browser. All right, so XHTML is an XML version of HTML, and XML, as you might guess, stands for Extensible Markup Language. It's a markup language that is readable by both machines and humans, and it standardizes the methods to access information, so it makes that process more efficient and accurate. So XHTML in many ways is similar to HTML, but it has a more strict error handling approach. 
a web browser will still give the old college try to display a web page that has HTML errors in it. But with XHTML, well, you'll be headed back to editing to find out where you done messed up. Tim Berners-Lee developed HTML back in the early 90s while working with CERN, and I'm sure many of you listening to this have played around with HTML at some point. The first two web pages I ever made, I coded completely in HTML. I actually had a document open where I typed everything out in HTML, then I had to upload it, then I had to refresh a page to see how it would display, then I would realize that everything was terrible, I'd have to go back into my document, change it there, and re-upload the code, and repeat that process until I got it right. Thankfully, I don't remember the address for either of those web pages anymore. I mean, they are, you know, gosh, how old would they be? I made them back in, in college, so that was in the early, you know, mid-90s. So if they still exist, I am unaware of them. I bet they don't exist. I'm sure those servers are down, but I cannot relive that terrible, terrible web page that I made, and I'm thankful for that. I remember one was definitely about pirates, so let's move on. Next, we have HTTP and HTTPS. On a related note, uh, this is similar to or relates to the HTML. This stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol, and HTTPS is Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure. As I mentioned, a protocol is a set of instructions or rules that machines follow in order to complete some process. So it's how machines quote unquote know what to do and in what order. So in this case, the process is the transmission of hypermedia documents, such as those that are coded in HTML. The original purpose for HTTP was to allow web browsers, also known as clients, to request and receive HTML documents from web servers, also known as servers. So in brief, let's say you wanted to navigate to a website. You would type an address into your browser's address bar and you hit enter or you click or whatever. And at this point, the client, that is your web browser, follows HTTP and sends a request out to the server. Well, it, there's a lot of steps in between here, but we're just going to skip over those. And hopefully that server responds by sending the appropriate HTML document to your browser. The browser then renders the web page based on the code of the HTML page within the browser window. As for HTTPS, the secure is really important. These days, many sites rely on HTTPS rather than plain old HTTP. Communication across HTTPS is encrypted by the Transport Layer Security, or TLS. In the old days, this was known as the Secure Sockets Layer, or SSL. What that means is that the information sent between the client and server goes through an encryption process, so if someone should intercept the data, all they would end up with would look like meaningless garbage. So it uses an asymmetric public key infrastructure. And you might wonder, what the heck does that mean? Well, in a simple encryption process, you would have an encoding device that would transform your plain message into encrypted text. Let's say that we're using an old standby, the classic plastic decoder ring, like the kind that used to come in cereal boxes and stuff. Anyone who had a copy of that same ring could decrypt your message because all the rings followed the exact same encoding process. All the same rings anyway. 
Different rings had different encoding. You get what I mean. So this would be a pure public key, effectively. And it wouldn't be very useful because the key would spread so far and wide that it would just add a minor step between intercepting a message and learning what's in that message. If the key is easily available, then it's almost as if you sent stuff unencrypted. So an asymmetric public key has two keys. One is a public key used to encode messages. But this encoding process is not reversible. You cannot use a public key to decode an encrypted message. It doesn't work that way. So once the public key transforms the message, only a second private key can decode it. The web server, in this case, holds onto this precious private key and does not share it. And that way, any information sent to the server remains safe. HTTPS is what enables online shopping. Because of that encryption, consumers can have confidence that their purchasing information, like credit card numbers, will remain secure. You can see if a website is using HTTPS just by looking at the beginning of the address and seeing HTTPS at the beginning. In addition, a lot of browsers will also include a padlock icon that will indicate whether or not the site is using HTTPS. Next up, we have I slash O. Now, this isn't just the name of Google's developer conference for all things Android, the I.O. conference. It's an older term that means input and output. And yeah, this is getting pretty darn basic. Input is obviously the stuff you put into a computer. It might be keystrokes on a keyboard. It might be moving and clicking a mouse. It might be using a touchscreen command or maybe a voice command or, you know, there's lots of stuff. It's how you act on a computer and not just you. Input can include incoming communications from other devices and systems. Output, well, that's what a computer puts out. It might be something really overt. It might be like a print job sent to a printer, or a message on a display, or sound effects played on a speaker. Or it could be more subtle, with a CPU executing instructions that aren't necessarily observable by a human user. It's the result of the computer executing instructions on data. That's the output. So some devices are pretty easy to categorize as either input or output devices. A keyboard, a mouse, a trackpad, a joystick. These appear to be pretty clearly input devices. A computer display or printer, that's pretty clearly an output device. But to be fair, some of these can actually straddle the line. For example, joysticks with haptic feedback are arguably both input and output devices because the computer can send signals to the motors in the joystick that make it rumble according to computer output. And a lot of modern printers can also act as scanning devices. So you can use them to input data into a computer system, not just print data out. There are also all the various cables and modems and routers and such that act as both input and output devices. In some cases, they might relay information to your computer, and in others, they might carry that information from your computer to somewhere else. So it's not as clear-cut as all that, but, you know, generally you can kind of categorize stuff. We've got a lot more eyes to get through, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. So, do you think I can get through all the rest of the eyes before the end of the episode? I can. 
That's a joke because our next one is ICANN, I-C-A-N-N. That means the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. This is a not-for-profit agency that formed in 1998, and its purpose is to coordinate, quote, unique identifiers, end quote, that let computers find each other over the Internet. Now, you might remember from the last episode in this series that I talked about the Domain Name System, or DNS. The DNS makes it way easier to navigate the Internet because it uses letters, typically in the form of words or initialisms, rather than a seemingly random series of numbers or possibly numbers and letters, which is the underlying format for IP addresses. We'll talk about more of those in a second. Well, what's going on here is that the address you type in, like www.youtube.com, relates to a numerical IP address. You just don't have to worry about that number because of the DNS. For all this to work, each address needs to be unique. If there were two different sites that were using www.youtube.com, your computer and all the machines beyond your computer wouldn't know which one you wanted to go to when you typed in the address. Similarly, each IP address must be unique. ICANN coordinates how IP addresses and top-level domains are supplied so that there's no confusion and internet traffic goes to where it's supposed to go. Now, ICANN does not control the internet itself. It's more of a facilitator, kind of like a centralized authority that various entities like registrars work with in order to keep things running smoothly. ICANN calls its chief responsibility, quote, universal resolvability, end quote, meaning that no matter where in the world you are, if you type a particular address out in the web browser or send an email to a specific email address, you can be assured that you're going to get the same results that you would get anywhere else in the world, assuming you're not you know, falling victim to a man-in-the-middle attack, but that's a totally different <laughs> kettle of fish. Moving on, I-E-E-E, -E -E. that's really I-triple-E, -E, or as I used to say in the old days, I-E-E. This is formerly known as the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, and I'll quote the organization on itself uh, in a second. But these days, it's just the I-triple-E, -E, and, and I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. This is, quote, an association dedicated to advancing innovation and technological excellence for the benefit of humanity, end quote. And it's also, quote, the world's largest technical professional society, end quote. The organization actually traces its history back more than a century, all the way back to 1884. You know, obviously, the Internet was not around back then. That's often we, we associate the IEEE with the Internet. But back then, they were associated with the bustling telegraph industry. And at that point, it was known as the AIEE, or American Institute of Electrical Engineers. The more modern version of the IEEE, you could say, launched in the 1960s. While the original purpose of the group was as a professional organization for engineers, these days it counts numerous professions in its membership, including scientists and medical professionals. And that is why the IEEE usually just goes by IEEE rather than its full name, because the full name implies it's just an organization for engineers alone, and that's just not the case. The IEEE promotes collaboration among companies, technical professionals, scientists, and more, all to push technological innovation and, ideally, to service humanity in general. 
The IEEE is host to numerous educational services in the technical fields. It pushes for standardizations in various areas of tech. It acts as a repository for a wealth of publications relating to technical knowledge and specifications. Uh, One of the famous standards that the IEEE ratified and helped develop was for the family of local area network technical standards. This is the set of standards computers use to communicate with one another at a local area network. More on those in a future episode. This is the 802.11 set of standards, which includes all those wild designations you see on Wi-Fi modems and routers. When you hear people talking about 802.11G versus 802.11AX or whatever, those are all different network standards for the transmission of wireless data, and IEEE, through collaboration of countless contributors, established those standards, which means you know that the stuff you have will talk to the other stuff you have. Without those standards, you would have all these different proprietary means of wireless communication, and the internet would be a total mess. Moving on. IoT. This is the Internet of Things. Back in 1999, Kevin Ashton, a technologist and author, coined this phrase, and he was looking ahead and envisioning a world in which lots of different stuff would connect directly or indirectly to the Internet. It wouldn't just be a network of computers and network devices and switches and stuff, but of all sorts of things, from individual sensors to appliances to vehicles and beyond. Now, at the time, I think a lot of people didn't really appreciate what this would really mean, or the scope at which it would happen, or how it would necessitate huge strides in how we handle stuff like privacy, security, data storage, and information analysis. In fact, I'd say a lot of us are still getting a handle on that today, particularly as we see companies continue to market products that could pose as a potential security vulnerability within a network. It took several years for IoT to evolve from a hypothetical concept to a buzzword to a real thing, but we're definitely in that real thing stage today. Heck, we didn't get the first popular consumer smartphone until 2007, so it took quite a while for IoT to kind of take off. But these days, you'll find tons of consumer products that fall into the IoT category, from smart thermostats that have a persistent network connection to sensors that you can put out into the garden and let you know when you should water your plants. And then there are the countless internet-connected devices that the average consumer isn't even aware of. These could be used to collect data on a regional level, giving organizations like civil engineers more information from a hyper-local level all the way out to broad regional views. Again, the technology has both incredible potential to help transform our world in meaningful ways, as well as the potential to cause a lot of problems, whether through poor implementation or questionable motivations. It's hard to say how big the Internet of Things really is because new devices join every day. And so we're left with estimates, and even with estimates, there are a huge range there. For example, uh, Juniper Research estimates that for 2021, we're looking at 46 billion connected devices. But uh, Statista estimates that we'll hit 38.6 billion connected devices by 2025. That's a pretty big difference, like seven and a half billion devices difference in those estimates. And one of those estimates involves a year that's 
uh, by my count, four years in the future. So to be fair, this kind of thing is really hard to get a handle on. It's hard to get an accurate estimate as to how many devices are connected to the internet. Also, how do you define that? Do you discount stuff like computers and smartphones and just focus on what we would traditionally refer to as IoT devices? So I think it's pretty safe to say we're somewhere in the tens of billions of connected devices somewhere, though a precise headcount really isn't possible. Next, we have IP. This stands for Internet Protocol, and it's frequently paired with the word address. In other words, IP address. This is the numerical string that is unique to each device connected to a computer network that is using IP as its communication protocol anyway. But more broadly, IP is a communications protocol and it all gets incredibly technical. Plus, we're going to dive into this further when we get to TCP IP later on, because more often than not, we hear of these two sets of protocols grouped together than we typically hear of them separately. Now, I will say there are two major versions of IP that are in use today. IPv4 is the older one. That one has been in use for decades, and it still remains the dominant version of IP used today. It's been in use since the early 1980s with stuff like SatNet and ARPANET. It uses a 32-bit address space, which allows for 2 to the 32nd power of addresses. So in theory, uh, that you would get that many addresses, but a lot of those millions of them are actually held in reserve but that translates to nearly 4,300,000,000 addresses. Not quite, it's like 4,290,000,000-something million. And that sounds like a lot of addresses, but again, you know, we just talked about IoT. When you take into account all the devices connected to the internet, you realize 4.3 billion is really not that much in the grand scheme of things. You'll usually see an IPv4 address written in dot decimal notation with four groups of numbers separated by decimal points. So in the old How Stuff Works article on IP addresses, which I used to refer to all the time back in my days writing for that site, the address for the, quote, machine that humans refer to as HowStuffWorks.com, end quote, has the address 216.183.103.1. By the way, I see you, all you websites out there that took that information and presented it on your own web pages without attribution. Some of you didn't even bother to change the wording at all. For shame. Anyway, the groups of numbers can only occupy a range of 0 to 255. So you would never have an IPv4 address that would have a group of numbers like 472 or anything like that. That's not supported by the protocol. Now, IPv6 is the most recent version of the Internet Protocol. It has been a standard since 2017 when it was ratified, and its addressing system is a 128-bit address. Remember, IPv4 is 32-bit. So that means that it could allow for addresses at 2 to the 128th power, way more than IPv4. It's, it, it, it's, it's an understatement to say way more. These addresses are in hexadecimal digits grouped in four digits each with eight groups total, and they're separated by colons. And one of the main reasons for IPv6 was that it was clear that IPv4 addresses were going to run out. In fact, that has happened with several regional internet registries, and that would necessitate greater adoption of IPv6. 
but both IPv4 and IPv6 protocols are able to work simultaneously, and browsers, modern browsers, support both. That means that a lot of systems are still using IPv4 because they haven't, you know, felt an urgent need to get up to date on, on all of that because it still works. Now, to be fair, the process of switching over isn't as simple as actually flipping a switch. It's much more involved than that. Now, IPv6 has a lot of advantages over IPv4 beyond the fact that it's not going to run out anytime soon, that is. And I probably will need to do a full episode to run down both versions of the protocol to explain it a bit more. Finally, for this episode, we have IRC, Internet Relay Chat. This is a text-based online chat system that dates back to the 1980s. IRC allows a single computer to open up multiple chat communication channels with other computers all at the same time, and multiple computers can also join a single communication channel, so you kind of have party chat. So you can have numerous one-on-one chats open through IRC clients, or you could join a party chat or both. In the old days, to use IRC, you needed to install an IRC client, and it's kind of like a a web browser, but it's for text-based chat. Later on, some web browsers incorporated IRC clients within the browser itself, which allowed users to pop into IRC chat without the need for a separate client. The IRC uses its own network of servers, with each server hosting chat rooms. Now, this means that unlike a web browser, where you just type an address in your browser bar and you get the web page you want, with IRC, you actually first have to navigate to the correct server that hosts the chat room you want to join. If you go to the wrong server, you'll either end up in a different room with the same name as the one you intended to visit, but it won't have any of the people you wanted to chat with there, or you'll create a brand new room with that name, and you'll be the only person there all by your lonesome, and that's just sad. So IRC is not nearly as user-friendly as many other chat systems online are, but it also has way lower bandwidth requirements, and you can be reasonably sure that your chat logs aren't being used to sell you more stuff in most cases, which is not something I can say for all chat systems online. Learning IRC does require a bit of work, uh, but only just a bit in order to get started. If you want to be a power user, well, that's a totally different thing, and you can put in the time to really learn how to use IRC, and you can even create your own IRC server, and you can host IRC chats on your own computer. Uh, So some groups still use IRC as sort of the no-nonsense method to communicate, but a lot have moved on to other more user-friendly systems like Discord, but those systems have their own drawbacks, um, primarily things like how they generate revenue. It's a very fascinating version of of communication protocols, really, and um, I definitely have been part of IRC chat rooms. I want to say that Scott Johnson's uh, chat room back in the old days was in an IRC chat, and these days I think he uses something different, but I want to say that that was the case. I could be wrong. I could be misremembering. Scott Johnson, by the way, phenomenal web comic artist as well as podcast host. If you're not familiar with his work, you should look it up. And that is it for this episode of Tech Stuff. When we come back on Wednesday, 
We will continue down the line of the alphabet. One day we will make it through all of them, and then I'll have to start figuring out what else I want to talk about. So I'm actually not in a rush to get through it all, because this is easy. I know what the next episode's going to be about, because there are more letters left. If you want to add more letters to the end of the alphabet to extend the series, please do. If you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in Tech Stuff, reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 